Hello, folks. I want to talk to you today about the novelist William Gibson. And I want to talk to you about how science fiction contributes to shaping popular culture, especially popular culture which contributes to our understanding of technology. A lot of science fiction writers have contributed to our understanding of technology. I'm thinking here of folk like Neil Stevenson and Snow Crash or Philip K. Dick. But the one I want to look at is Gibson, specifically because of the way he writes. And I want to talk primarily about his novel, uh, Neuromancer, but I'll also talk about his other novel, his later novel, Pattern Recognition. The reason I think those novels are valuable is because Gibson is very much oriented towards thinking about how the future is now. He's almost got his own little subgenre of science fiction. It's like this, the futural present, or the current moment, is science fictional, as he says in an interview in The New Yorker. The future is here. And that impetus, I think, makes his work quite telling. Now, to start generally, who is William Gibson? William Gibson is a renowned science fiction writer. He's often credited with pioneering what's known as the cyberpunk genre and his work includes novels like Pattern Recognition, Neuromancer, Count Zero, Mona Lisa, Overdrive and several others. He has a set of distinct preoccupations with regard writing fiction about technology. So firstly one of the key themes in Neuromancer as well as the rest of his fiction is cyberspace and virtual reality. In fact, I think he's the person who coined the term cyberspace, if not a neuromancer in one of his earlier stories. And that's the idea that virtual reality and computer networks become part of everyday life. And he's got this distinct fascination with the interconnectedness of technology and its impact on human experience. And he's doing that years ago. Neuromancer came out in the early 80s. The other themes that are in William Gibson's work well he's a dystopian writer his novels often depict dystopian futures or dystopian futures overlapping with the presence and those dystopian futures are marked by corporate dominance government malfeasance and they're usually set in a very Blade Runnery type of milieu so I'm thinking gritty, urban decay, high-tech underworld, lots of lowlifes, and he's trying to explore the consequences of, I suppose, the, the genre of detective fiction within a world of unbridled technological progress. Another key theme in his work is the merging of humans and technology, particularly vis-a-vis the idea of organic augmentation. So characters in a William Gibson novel will often undergo cybernetic enhancement or they'll have interfaces with technology and the whole blurring of the lines between human and machine is a continuing fascination for Gibson. So quite often you'll have characters upgrading organs or or trying to enhance their memory or blending their personality with the personas of others. 
the other big preoccupation, I think, of William Gibson's novels is technological countercultures. His novels often delve into subcultures of street lives. We have a world of hackers, rebels and other marginalised figures that exist on the fringe of society. A lot of his characters are hackers who typically engage in hacking and subverting systems, whether corporate, governmental or computerised. And mixed up in all of that is a good old-fashioned detective novel. He's got a very noir aesthetic, I suppose. A lot of the protagonists are quite ambiguous and they face existential challenges and the whole atmosphere of the novel, the whole tone is, again, dark and and gritty. Now, if we look at a specific novel by Gibson, we can talk about Neuromancer, which came out in 1984. Now, the first thing I want to say about Neuromancer is that I think it's a great novel, although I found it very hard to read. One of the things you will find with Gibson's novels is that they are not really enjoyable to read in the in immediate sense, but they do linger. They do stay with you. And I found myself thinking about them long after I had read them. So Neuromancer is somewhat plotless. And there's a basic plot there. It's about hackers and the hackers go on an adventure in cyberspace. And it's also got the detective theme to it. And there's also a artificial superintelligence which develops to a sufficient degree and it is kind of bordering on wanting to be a quasi-god in some way. The main protagonist case is a down-on-his-look computer hacker and he's hired by some mysterious employer called Armitage for uh, one last job and Armitage gives Case a new nervous system and promises to to cure him of his debilitating condition in exchange for completing a task. And that's the plot. Case is then joined by uh, Molly, who's a, a street samurai who has various technological prosthesis and enhancements. And they embark on a mission to infiltrate this powerful intelligence called Wintermute. Now, as I said, it's a difficult read. It doesn't read like a conventional novel. Of course, you might ask, what does a conventional novel read like? Well, in a typical novel, you get a basic story arc. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hopefully you get some comic levity along the way, a bit with a dog, perhaps. And this is from Aristotle's Poetics. A story starts with order, and along comes a monster or some kind of impediment to disrupt that order. And then we get a hero, and the hero tries to reestablish order at the end. This is upended in Gibson's novels, that structure. The disorder is the norm in Gibson's novels. So the difficulty, or rather my difficulty, to be fair, in reading the novel, I think stems from a deliberate aesthetic decision on Gibson's part. I think he's trying to produce an alienating or dislocating effect through his style. So there's a disruption of classic story structure. Another facet of that disruption of classic story structure is in the use of a third-person observer or the third-person distant authorial eye. But the idea is that the author or the writer recounts a story from a, a God's eye perspective, neutral, disinterested. In Neuromancer, that's not really the case. The technology has used in some sense disrupt the objective. So it's kind of first person, but it's also 
first person with technical prosthesis added on and the effect is that you find it hard to figure out sometimes who's talking and who's not talking and which voices is dominant which voice is not dominant but I'll let you read it if you want now what I'm interested in is what all this has to say about technology and firstly there is a political dimension to it the novel is I don't think an inherent critique of necessarily capitalism but it is a critique of a sort of dystopic, untrammeled future capitalism. And technology in that is seen as a form of opposition or a form of resistance to the more pernicious elements of corporate capitalism. So I think the target of the novel is not technology per se, but specific forms of governance. The forms of governance corporate, governmental, or both effectively as they merge in Gibson's futuristic cyberpunk landscape. And in that we get very typical cyberpunkian themes. We see that the settings are quite sprawling, neon-lit urban landscapes, and the cities are, as I'm sure you'll have seen in many a sci-fi if you've watched one, often polluted, overpopulated, rife with crime. So Gibson is really almost calling a genre into being. It's a very influential novel. It has influenced video games, graphic novels, music. And a form of scepticism suffuses the novel. There is a real anti-authoritarianism in Neuromancer, where there's this natural suspicion of large corporations, governments, and the attendant devices of surveillance, which they used to observe their populace. Now I can remember this was all written in the early 1980s, long before Apple and Google and Microsoft had developed into the contemporary tech giants that we all know and love. And we shouldn't dismiss the extent to which science fiction shapes popular culture and contributes to our self-understanding and transforming our self-understanding especially as it pertains to the relationship between ourselves and technology now of course we think of the word cyberspace and we hardly blink but in 1984 and the preceding years when Gibson was researching and writing about this the internet exists in a very nascent form and was probably just restricted to institutional uses at that point he's a writer who gives us the first vision of what it might be like to live, think, and coexist with virtual environments. He's also, I guess, one of the novelists, or first novelists, I suppose, who tries to think through the consequences of how data is a commodity. So someone's data is something that people can own, people can trade, people can exchange. It's something that can be bought and sold with or without individuals' consents. So Will Gibson very much is, while not the first person to talk about the relationship between technology and commodification, I think he's certainly one of the first people to think through it in novelistic form, but also to put depth on what a world of cyberspace will be like. He talks about viruses, antivirals, firewalls. He talks of jacking in and jacking out. And there's also, I think, one of the more interesting elements of Gibson's novels is we get 
a proto-sense of the idea of gamification. Gamification is an interesting concept. Basically, the idea is that we pose, introduce video game structures, principles, and architecture into non-video game contexts. So the idea would be like, say, on social media with something like Twitter, which you can conceive of as a game where you want to get the most followers, you want to get the most likes, and you construct avatar slash personas to try and overcome impediments to that or even more concretely say something like the object that i'm wearing right now the fitness tracker watch which as far as i can see is a expensive pedometer so i can go on the app on the phone and do things like that and you get little awards and stars and pointless affirmations come into you for doing the obvious like being a good exerciser or drinking enough water or sleeping well enough so i think that's a particularly powerful prophetic moment in gibson's novels and in neuromancer the idea is that cyberspace will be constructed as if it was a gigantic video game and that's really interesting because in 1984 video games were not as advanced as they are now i mean you had your pongs and your space invaders i think tetris came out in 1984 as it happens but the thought that you'd actually go into are that the architecture of a video game would be overlaid in everyday life was quite fantastical less so now i mean in some sense it still is it is still fantastical we don't still think of ourselves as living in a video game but there's a certain degree to which technological process and systems that we interface with are overlaying our everyday life that's going to become more exacerbated with the development of wearables and glasses and things like that but there is a very important idea in all of that i think and that's about the type of being that we are especially with the idea of data commodification because what gibson is telling us is that something about how we are embodied as human beings he's telling us something about what it is like to have bodies or the idea of data made flesh a key theme in his work is this sense that the protagonist of the novel can shed their fleshy embodiment at will. The body no longer has substantial heft. Embodiment is becoming dispersed. We're no longer embedded only in a concrete world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Embodiment is becoming dematerialized. And what's becoming dematerialized, it's becoming dematerialized into information transfer across distributed networks there's also a collective element to that which is really interesting we get the decentering of the human subject the subject becomes distributed across tech across information transfer in virtual spaces the term is consensual illusion which is a really really evocative phrase he's suggesting it's consensual in the sense that it's something that we will happily do or happily adopt we do actually give our consent to participate in a collective illusion that a network notion of subjectivity is a profound depersonalization it's a depersonalization of self-consciousness and it's the idea that society works as a, a network a form of network being if you like in the novel, for example, you see characters and they have microchips behind their ears and they can create brain-computer interfaces 
And I suppose the advantage of that is that you can add computer memory to your own memory, which of course, as we know, is very unreliable and fallacious. So there is a sense that we all adopt these technological prostheses in order to create a collective memory or the collective activity of memory, if you like, and ourselves are extended across space and time. And there's something really banal about that, about how humanity as a collective effort is something that's done through the perpetuation of a grand illusion. Of course, Gibson was very, very influential on the Dukowskis who gave us The Matrix. And similar to the movie, in Gibson's novels, protagonists can do things like learn karate or something like that, or you can get somebody else's memory transplanted into your brain, or you can input the Encyclopedia Britannica into your thoughts and things like that. But the idea is that the self is no longer viable, or what we used to think of as the autonomous subject, as in me here thinking which is quality different to the object of an external world out there. Now, or then, what Gibson was prophesizing then is coming to pass. We are the future of Gibson's novels, where our cells are extended, fragmented, distributed. And that's a claim about a qualitative difference. We're a different type of being now, which is interesting. We're the byproduct of informational transfer and we're thinkable as distributed social networks, almost possessing a, a form of collective intelligence. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's a good or a bad thing. One of the large deficits in the novel is that cyberspace prohibits an individual's ability to empathise. We're too busy being fragmented in order to have a feeling of concrete compassion. I think what all this denotes is quite remarkable moment, actually, because I think Gibson's point is that pattern or informational transferal becomes the essential reality. And what we take as the idea of mediated technology is, in fact, more real than how we are in any given instance of our embodied presence. So data is humanized and subjectivity is computerized. To put it in the terms of Catherine Hale's information is now more real. Typically we distinguish between information transferal and, and meaning. So I can send you some signals but they're not much use to you if unless you know what they denote. Whether this is a good or bad thing, I will, of course, let you decide. But the thing to think about is whether it is desirable to lose that anchoring locus that is our bodies. Is it a good thing to lose that sense of presence, the physicality of the body? And indeed, in Gibson's novels, when cyberspace is entered, the body is kind of just left there. It becomes an empty husk, something we leave behind when we jack into cyberspace. There is a quasi-religious thought to that as well. It's quite comforting to us to think that the finite, precarious, fleshy body can be infinitely reconstituted in the digital world, that it can be reanimated in cyberspace. And Neuromancer articulates that well. And there's something terrifying about that, that the self is no longer, or some folk would find it terrifying, I think, 
the self is no longer the self is its fragmentation and we have a virtual collectivity that's not something i instantiate myself i'm no longer that self-causing agent of classical subjectivity i'm now an extended mediated virtually constructed body and to take the step to think of that as a form of information or informational transferal really demands that we transform our thinking i think that's what Gibson is thinking through in a novel, what he's concerned about, the idea that pattern recognition becomes the only form of discourse. And of course, William Gibson also wrote another great novel called Pattern Recognition. Pattern Recognition was written in the early 2000s, so it came out in 2003, and it's usually classed as a post-9-11 novel, and he was addressing the destabilisation that the war on terror brought about, but largely pattern recognition explores the impact of a hyperconnected world or a hyperconnected world in the aftermath of a great disaster this is also explored in his most recent novels the peripheral and the idea of the jackpot which was a, a future apocalyptic event which uh, sets in motion the story in pattern recognition we follow a protagonist called case pollard a cool hunter and someone who is a character who is sceptical of branding, is allergic to branding. And the plot basically follows Case, who is tasked with tracking down the creator of mysterious film clips. And it's a novel that's about espionage and corporate malfeasance and global intrigue. And as well, I think, the desire and the pull, the allure of the virtual world. The novel tries to assess the impact of technology on identity. And again, as with Neuromancer, it's quite prophetic. Before things like Facebook and Twitter and social media and YouTube, before all of those took off and before even laptops were as extensive as they are now, the internet was, in a lot of folks' minds anyway, the internet where you hooked up to the phone and you heard that screeching noise, if you remember that. The technological phenomenology in it let me explain that. What's really interesting about pattern recognition is the phenomenology of what it is like to be a human in the informational age. Gibson is remarkably interesting in telling us what it is like to live in a deeper fusion of technology, mind and embodiment. So alongside the collapsing boundaries of the organic and the technological, the political, the personal, the ethical, and the type of human that we're left with is a really curious mix because of the fragmentation that technology precipitates for human identity. We're left not with anxiety or just dislocation in pattern recognition. What we get is a curious mix, a pervasion of uncertainty and dogmatism and certainty. The experience of the protagonist, the atmosphere even of the novel, is a strange mix of uncertainty and information retrieval so he's not saying that uncertainty is necessarily good or bad like he's not saying it's good to be skeptical or something like that rather there is something deeper at stake and that is that the humans become caught between uncertainty and dogmatic certainty or a certain type of dogmatic certainty as in the dogmatic certainty of information retrieval which our technologies can provide so 
technology brings about dislocation and alienation and uncertainty but we have all these tools at our disposal at the same time which makes us certain that the information we're retrieving is absolutely correct the experience is weird slightly nightmarish it's dreamlike and the novel is a an experience in itself an event itself which tries to articulate the collapse of time and space and the collapse of meaning it's oddly beautiful and everywhere what we have quite tragically i suppose humans who are trying to like walter binyman says construct a redemption out of the fragments of the past the present and the future past the present and the future are constantly reach for or grasp for yet that truth is and meaning is intransigent it's elusive it's partial our material selves are distributed across immaterial or quasi immaterial technologies and gibson then is announcing a new type of being again a new type of knowledge that is neither physical or supernatural and that the only way we can now understand ourselves is within a very technologized form of true which is only true when things are informationally transferred we are the beings who are subject to understanding ourselves as nodes within a network of information transferal and the dystopic dimension of that is that our bodies our presence our sense of physical heft is something too that can be reworked, reconstituted, resold. The idea that our bodies can be reconstituted, replaced, refurbished is quite a mechanical way of thinking about the human body. And all of those themes are always in Gibson's novels. The weird and wonderful aesthetic of cryogenics and cloning and organ transplantation and virtuality. Overlaying all of that is a question of spectacle spectacle of disintegration and spectacles are something fascinating watchable enjoyable and this is where gibson is pessimistic we are enjoying our own downfall we enjoy the distribution of ourselves across the technological landscapes we enjoy the collective intelligence if we can call it that of what our technological inputs on our computers produces on a grand scale. Secretly, we love the fragmentation. We love the dissolution. But it's not all doom and gloom. Fundamentally, I think Gibson is actually an optimist. Like many folk who write dystopias, and perhaps even the reverse is true of utopias, folks like Thomas Moore and Karl Marx are fundamentally distrustful of human beings. The point is, though, that Gibson's optimism is played out in his prophetic sci-fi cyberpunk visions he does see us as going on muddling on surviving and what i think is really valuable about gibson is his picture of the sheer messiness of the digital revolution he says in that new yorker interview that he does not buy any talk of the singularity that moment when humanity is completely transformed by technology he thinks instead, and I'm quoting from the New Yorker article, he thinks we'll get a half-assed singularity where the world is transformed dramatically but haphazardly. And I don't think he thinks that it's in our nature to be perfectible beings. Thankfully, our own existential clumsiness will somehow help us evade utter obliteration. Next time. <laughs>